0: Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better, more just world.
1: Hello comrades, you're listening to another episode of Just Us and the Climate, hosted by the Climate Justice Coalition. I'm your host for today, Robert Krauss from Center for Applied Legal Studies. The fight against runaway climate change is one of the most decisive battles of our generation. The publication of the climate change bill is very significant as an overarching framework is required to get the coordination necessary to address um, the, the enormous challenges involving limiting emissions, reorganizing the economy, but also to ensure adaptation to the inevitable impacts of climate change. It is also really important from the point of view of the Climate Justice Coalition that the framework provides for climate justice. Just reducing emissions is insufficient unless the new economy that is built ensures living wages and livelihoods, reinvestment in infrastructure and basic services, and a safe environment for communities. Further, given the large number of jobs in the coal industry and upstream and downstream industries, it is essential that that workers are retrained, and viable jobs that pay living wages are ensured are in the new sectors in the economy, and also that the gender imbalance is addressed. Therefore, as the climate bill is before Parliament, it's very critical to ask questions about how far does it go in advancing a comprehensive vision of climate justice. So today, to help us answer this question, we have four guests who represent Four different sectors and forms of expertise so to provide a legal synopsis of the bill we have Brandon Abdenor an attorney at the Centre for Environmental Rights to provide the perspective of women in working class communities we have um, Fontaine and Corsi from Waterberg Women's Advocacy Association WWAO to provide the perspective of the labour movement we have Matthew Grant from SAFTU and to provide a youth perspective, we have youth activist Gabrielle Clausens representing the African Climate Alliance. So, to set the scene, I will call on one of the lawyers amongst us, Comrade Brandon, to provide a high level synopsis of what the Climate Justice Bill is about, how it works, what its mechanisms are, but also what its main strengths and weaknesses are.
2: Thank you, Robert. Um, Hello everybody, it's really good to be here and it's obviously very important that we have these essential conversations. So after a long wait um, and mounting need, we've finally seen a new draft of the bill being tabled in Parliament in February this year. This was after a three-year delay when the last version of the bill was tabled in 2018. And before that, there were a number of years where nothing appeared to be happening, which is obviously a concern given the mounting nature of the crisis. Given the nature of the climate crisis and the impacts um, across all levels of society, economy, and the environment, this is arguably one of the most important laws ever to cross the desks of our legislators. The bill attempts to deal with climate response uh, in three main areas. So the one is cooperative governance and institutional arrangements. In other words, how are the different tiers and levels and sectors of government uh, to be organized and coordinated to mount a sound climate response? Secondly, it deals with climate adaptation, so that's adapting to those impacts that are unavoidable, no matter how well we respond. And thirdly, it deals with mitigation. So how do we stop making the problem worse? How do we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions to slow down, stop, and finally reverse the global warming that is causing the climate change? So it's really good to see this piece of legislation come back into the light and we need to see it become an act as urgently as possible. But there are a number of issues and concerns around the way that the bill is currently formulated. So in terms of the corporate governance and the institutional arrangements, we feel that the bill is not adequately mainstreaming climate change response across government. We don't see adequate parliamentary oversight or mandated reporting on climate response to parliament. We don't see the bill make mention of any dedicated attention by national treasury, such as ring fencing an aspect of the budget, for example. And this leads to a situation where the issue is not sufficiently prioritized. And effectively, the Department of the Environment, which needs to oversee the implementation of this bill, Um, can be seen to have to compete with other departments to ensure committed climate response. Responsibilities given to municipalities, provinces and sectoral departments um, are provided for in the bill, but there's no provision made for financial and technical support for these organs of state to do what they need to do. The bill creates climate change forums to be established by provinces and metros, but they are integrated into existing forums, meaning that climate change might not get the attention that it deserves. Around climate adaptation, the bill has very slow time frames for climate response and adaptation plans. Uh, the different sectors for example agriculture electricity etc etc need to come up with sectoral response plans but these only need to be in place a full four years after the act comes into being in the case of provincial and municipal climate response plans that uh, extends to five years so if we think of what happened in KZN with the floods it's at those levels that a lot of climate change adaptation needs to take place, and we simply don't have the time to wait five years for those plans to be put in place and followed. There is no proper evaluation provided for municipal adaptation plans to be reviewed, or technically evaluated to ensure that they're sound, so that leads to the danger that Adaptation plans and response plans could be treated as a sort of cut-and-paste tick-box exercise without meaningful and proper sound climate response informed by science. And there's also no provision made for capacity building of these organs of state. So many of these responses need expertise and scientific input and engineering input and so on. And without that capacity building happening at the different levels, again, there's a danger that these plans will not be effective. Around mitigation, which is reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, the bill, as it's currently published, has very weak emissions reductions targets. In fact, the targets in there, which are from 2015, are on line with the three-degree temperature increase trajectory. Um, And for Southern Africa, that means six degrees as we are warming up at twice the global rate. And there are also no longer-term targets. So those targets really effectively go up to 2030 and then it becomes very vague after there, whereas best practice around the world um, can look at trajectories going all the way through to 2050. Carbon budgets are provided for, and these are the limits on how much emitters can emit, but they will only be enforced via a carbon tax. So there's no penalty or um, offence created by the exceeding of a carbon budget. And this basically allows emitters to choose to pay for excess emissions, but there are no other means of of stopping them from doing so. Perhaps more worrying is that this establishment of carbon budgets has no time frame to it in the bill. Sectoral emissions targets, which are are basically also a way of managing Greenhouse gas emissions reduction, again, within the different sectors, for example, mining or transport, also have no timeframes. And this issue of no timeframes is critically important. The current minister and department are working on these climate change response issues without legislative backing as such. But if there's a change to the office bearers or some of the political leaders in that sphere, um, and maybe they are replaced by by people who have less of a commitment to to a sound climate response, it's possible that these important mechanisms might never get into place at all if there are no deadlines in the bill. In general terms, the bill provides very inadequately for the proactive disclosure of information and transparency. So information made available to the minister in terms of the bill is supposed to be made available to the public, but this is subject to the promotion of access to information bill or act, and that act provides certain defenses. So one can request the information, but if it's deemed to be commercially sensitive, for example, or there are other reasons why it shouldn't be made available, then those requests can get denied. And again, given the nature of the climate crisis, there is a view that this sort of information should be proactively and publicly and easily made available. There are some jurisdictions around the world where all of this information is made available on a website, and any member of the public can go and see exactly what's happening with emissions, what's happening with progress of reducing them, who's got what carbon budgets in place, are they complying, are there any exemptions, and all of this is missing from this bill. The bill also only provides for one offence, and that is the failure to provide what is called a Greenhouse Gas Mitigation Plan. So again, we could see emitters that continually exceed their carbon budgets, for example, and there's no mechanism in place to prevent them from doing that. There are also a number of mechanisms which are in place, again, in jurisdictions around the world, which are deemed to be best practice and which could be very advisable to include. But are not in our bill. For example, some places around the world provide for an independent science advisory body that can provide objective science based advice to inform the state on climate change response measures and progress. And there's a feeling that if that a body like that were in place to provide this objective, scientifically based information, it is harder for sort of political choices to be made that are not in accordance with South climate response. It would also be good to see mandatory climate risk reporting by the private sector, such as companies. This is also in place in in certain places around the world where companies, particularly in the financial sector, are obliged to report on climate risk. Uh, The feeling here is that if companies are not adequately addressing and thinking of climate risks, they themselves could end up in trouble and there's obviously a negative cascading effect throughout the economy. We would also like to see the bill make more provision for education and awareness on climate change, both within the schooling system and very importantly for decision-makers in government. The level of climate literacy in South Africa is relatively low, and we feel if the bill or the eventual act provides an impetus for awareness to be created more broadly, um, that's obviously going to help with an all-of-society climate response, which is really what the, the process requires.
1: Now, thank you, Brandon, for a very comprehensive overview and critical analysis. I mean, some of the themes are, one, the mechanisms lack some of the consideration for the practicalities that make them feasible. For example, local and provincial government of responsibilities under the act in, in terms of adaptation plans, particularly, but there's no provision for capacitation. Then, secondly, a lack of accountability mechanisms, a lack of transparency, and a lack of teeth in the form of clear penalties and offences, and also lack of timeframes, given the the urgency of the issues. I will hand over to the next speaker, um Comrade Francina from the from WWAO. I would really be interested to hear your perspectives from your point of view as an activist, as a community activist, as a woman impacted by mining, but also by coal-fired power stations. So from that point of view, what would you like to see in the climate bill? And in your view, to your knowledge, does the bill go far enough to address community concerns?
3: Thank you very much and greetings. Uh, My name is Francine Angose, based in the rural area of Lepalale. Uh, My input on this bill is that you look at the preamble of the bill. It talks about Section 24 and Section 27 of the Constitution, Whereby we we have the right to clean our environment, but it's not implemented or that it's not done. For me, it's like a player and a referee at the same time. Talks about clean, affordable, uh, renewable energy. On the other side, talking about Uh, the clean environment, but uh, it's not there. For me, I feel that as communities, we are the ones who are affected by climate change a lot or by air pollution due to the big projects. Number one, they should implement the free prior and informed consent. The reason being that if a project gets a consent from the community, that will be very vital if we want the project or if we don't want uh, the project because we are the ones who are affected and we are the ones who are the host, but we are affected by being uh, forcefully removed from our land the bill also needs to look at uh emphasizing on the awareness because whatever uh it's the context it's in the climate change bill most of the people who are in the rural areas they don't know and they don't understand but if that could come where the communities are Uh, it will be very, very much important because the community will understand what is climate change bill and they will give input on how they are affected by climate change in their community. And that way, it will lead into saying communities are taking part in decision-making because communities are not taking part and there is no proper community participation. It's only a tick box. And for us to remove the tick box, it, there must be a proper community participation where communities are being told, this is what is happening and this is how it's going to affect you. And they need to get a consent from communities. And we mustn't forget that women are the ones who are bearing a burden. Of a climate change, there's no more uh, farming, good farming, and there's no good excess of water, and there is uh, no uh, a way of getting firewood because this coal uh, electricity it's not reliable, and community needs to understand the importance of. Uh, just transition or the importance of renewable energy so that that one it will be a choice for communities to say we don't want electricity that is done by uh, coal and on the bill if that is uh, done it will also be a, a part where uh, women can feel that energy is a woman's issue and we are part as communities. Then we can be able to say, no, we don't want cold, but we want the wind one because here is windy. Or we want uh, the solar panels. Uh, or maybe we say we can use biogas for cooking. And those ones are, the, are, are need to be in the climate change bill because um, we need a clean, affordable, renewable energy. And this thing of saying the president uh, needs to make promises, those are empty promises because nothing has changed yet. Uh, we still in a serious climate change. We don't want to see uh, or maybe experience what, Uh, KZN have experienced the flooding, you know, people dying due to climate change, heavy rains, uh, and that one, uh, it needs to be there on saying this is how we're going to assist communities who are affected. Because, uh, our disaster management, we need to have a proper plan on how that could be done because we, we can't have a bill that doesn't have those clause to say if, uh, the polluter, uh, doesn't pay, then it means the polluter is killing, uh, the communities. And for us, we want to preserve this continent uh, for the future generation. And if we don't have that loss uh, that says, if you have uh, polluted, uh, then your contract is terminated. That way it, w- it doesn't show that we, we are moving. The implementation of NEMA as an act uh, needs to be there as a standard and then also, we need to have a proper adoption strategy uh, reviewed every year, not every five years, because that takes time. And um, that's why I've said the suspension of licenses for non-compliance. And uh, we need to to have a a, a rehabilitation of all old minds, because that is very crucial and uh, very important. And the last one, implementation of free prior and informed consent. All affected communities must be part of all decision making.
1: Thank you Comrade Fonsina, for another really thorough and multifaceted contribution. So in addition to the existing themes, I think what came very clearly is is the demand from communities that the climate change bill and all legislation that regulates development should expressly provide that communities have a right to free, prior and informed consent, so that you have leverage on how development occurs, whether it occurs, what form. The other clear theme, which very much echoed, um, comrade Brandon was education. That it's vital that communities are empowered and educated to understand the energy alternatives put before them and to be able to motivate for forms of electricity that's, that's, that service the community and with community involvement in them. Without that education, the critical mass to oppose projects with coal-fired power plants, and and to support renewables, is is not going to be there. And what also came through very clearly is meaningful participation in the actual development decisions, but also which flows from free, from informed consent. But also in the process of this bill itself. So not only about particular developments to have community participation and consent, but also to have meaningful community participation in the development of this current bill into a law, which is concerning given that, to my knowledge, as this podcast is being recorded, there still is not a clear schedule and plan for broad based public participation on this bill that is of utmost importance not only to everybody living now but to future generations. So, another sector that is directly burdened by the impacts of climate change are workers, the, the, work, the section of the working class that are employed. So, this impact is both in terms of the actual impacts of climate change, adaptation, given that um, workers still disproportionately live in areas and in, in quality of houses that are going to be affected by terrible weather conditions, but also in relation to many of the workers who are employed in sectors such as coal or in industries connected to it. So the need for a just transition. So to unpack the labour perspective, we have here SAFTU represented by Comrade Matthew Grant. So so again, like Os asked Francina, Comrade Matthew from a labour perspective and a SAFTU perspective particularly what would you want to see in 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 a climate justice bill worthy of its name and to your knowledge does the current does the current bill measure up
0: thanks robert um so i'm matthew grant research and policy coordinator for SAFTU. i think that the current bill as brendan sort of gave us an overview of just really doesn't do enough um, especially for our sector in terms of employed workers that we represent as do, I think that the main issue that we have with this bill is it actually stands alone. It does not integrate itself into the rest of uh, legislation that is required around job losses, around uh, retraining and reskilling, because of the climate uh, emergency as it actually is will most likely um, impact industries, close down industries, interrupt industries, and with that, the employment and the livelihoods of the working class in South Africa and in the world, um, actually. And that's a very important point because as we've seen, and our current context really shows us right now today, we've got rising food prices because of transport costs that are increasing. The war in Ukraine has created a global emergency, really, with costs of living. Um, Our repo rate is more than likely about to go up. There's a, a massive impact in a globalized capitalist system. And if you add into that system other interruptions, such as climate changes in various parts of the world, you're going to have interrupted supply chains everywhere. And the inability for certain countries, especially ones that depend on import and export um, to adapt quite um, immediately to such interruptions. And that's definitely going to have an impact on which workers are employed in which positions in various parts of the economy in this country. So I think that one of the main things is that the bill just doesn't talk enough to what happens when jobs are lost due to interruptions of the economy from uh, a climate emergency. And I'll follow that on with saying that even though the climate bill itself recognizes that there is uh, a problem uh, with the climate and that uh, climate change is inevitable, it does not recognize that it is an emergency. And it very well is. Uh, The the greenhouse gas emissions are climbing. The bill itself makes no direct reference to uh, the degrees by which we need to come down in terms of the temperatures. And that's going to impact what uh, private and public uh, workplaces do. I also wanna follow on and say that South Africa is moving more and more towards the privatization of many of these industries and within a capitalist system, which is extremely elastic you'll find that job security will come under threat. There'll be more and more part-time employment as private sector employers try and adapt themselves to worsening, a worsening climate. With decreases in supply or increases in demand, they're going to be making their workplaces adapt in ways that will not benefit workers. They'll be paying them short time, uh, they'll be retrenching when they need to, and. That system allows itself just to be strung around by the globalist capitalist system that just does what it wants when it wants. And I think for many of those who are lucky enough to actually be employed in South Africa that has a massive uh, unemployment rate, at least, it has one of the most unequal countries. It is one of the most unequal countries in the world, and it has a huge, huge youth unemployment And it does not speak to just transition that is currently within government. It does not uh, reference exactly how that's going to be implemented within a climate that is changing and especially for a bill that needs to change with it. It does not do uh, anything for, for those workers. I think the other thing I wanted to mention with this is that as with the mining sector, which I'm going to use it as an example. The mining sector is mandated to decrease injuries in the mines, and all of the CEOs of those big mining companies in South Africa have a goal of zero fatalities. They've not yet achieved that. The legislation that the Mines Health and Safety Act provides does not do enough to prosecute those who are responsible for their employees' safety. Just as in that case, the climate bill has no real teeth in it that sets to prosecute who may, who may be personally liable for exceeding the climate targets that it also does not have. It just, as uh, Brandon did show us, it just simply states that if those employers don't submit some plan, then they're going to be in trouble. But the bill should be specifically talking to criminal and civil punitive measures for any of those uh, greenhouse gas targets that get exceeded. There's just no liability that's there. And the government needs to play a direct role to keep the private sector and itself as the public sector in check with these things. There's just not enough teeth there. And without that, um, unfortunately, that's how a lot of the, the law works. There needs to be real punitive measures in place to show the employers what would happen if these goals are not met? And I think the mining sector has shown us that without those uh, punitive measures, it just isn't obtainable. Um, More than that, uh, we agree that there needs to be a lot more public education, but I would go further. It's not just about educating everyone around what the climate emergency is. It's got to do with how it intervenes and draws across sectors. What impact does it have upon agriculture and the jobs they're in? And most importantly, workers who are employed in those sectors usually are supporting at least five people on their own salary. So it's not something that just affects employed workers, it affects their communities, it affects their whole families. It affects their ability to provide education to their children, to provide security, uh, it also needs to be an education that deals with how these things intersect socioeconomically. It's got to do with the climate emergency as it affecting society as a whole and globally as well. And that type of education needs to be something that shows that it's not just for us as such to a concern about job losses. It's a concern really about working class families and the working class generally. And we believe that a capitalist system just does not have the capabilities to adequately deliver itself to protect um, its citizenry. It will be elastic. It will find ways to protect its profit. It will find ways to protect its bosses at the expense of its employees and of the working class as a whole.
1: Thank you, Comrade Matthew. I think you echo a lot of the key points regarding the lack of teeth in in the in the bill, but also bringing in a point really important points regarding the the just transition that given the scale of the human impact on working class livelihoods and lives and the social ramifications in relation to in multiple intersecting rights and needs that this this bill does not Go near far enough or doesn't even really begin to grapple with the urgency of not only the emissions reduction challenge, but the just transition social challenge. And I think the last point is also on, on, on the education. I think also made a really good point is that the education can't just be scientific, but should also be social, um, and, and political because it's not, it's the science is absolutely critical, but so is understanding the impacts on a social level. So if anything, the the sector of society that is particularly affected, and especially amongst the working class, are the youth, as the impacts of climate change are inevitably, even in the best case, 1.5 degree increase scenario, the impacts are going to get worse, and the present youth and even more so future generations are going to be the most impacted. So to unpack the youth perspective, we have in the studio, Comrade Gabrielle Claassen from African Climate Alliance and, and a youth climate activist. So Gabrielle, again, I would really like to hear from you, firstly, from the point of view of the youth, the issues that you would want the bill to tackle, but also your reflections on whether the bill meets these needs.
4: Thank you, Kamil Dobit. Um, I think, uh, first of all, my name is Gabriel Clausen. Uh I'm a youth intersectional justice activist. I'm from South Africa. I'm with the African Climate Alliance. Um, and I think uh, what was said earlier was, was quite powerful, is that it's not just something sitting in one area of society, but that the issues actually find a way to intersect, <laughs> which means that our solutions need to find a way to intersect. And sadly, right now, I don't think the climate change bill holds the weight that it needs to to tackle those intersecting injustices that young people will and are disproportionately facing. Uh, I think time and time again, we've seen that young people have been, I think, the best word I can say is uh, just historically um, betrayed. We we see it uh, in the way that those before us have tried to fight for a system that is different. And here we are continuing to have to fight. The first issue I think Comrade Francina raised amazingly is the level of education and understanding. There's already such a massive disparity when it comes to climate education in South Africa. Just education and access to education for young people in South Africa to begin with. And so when it comes to climate change, there is an entire different world that we haven't yet begun to unpack and look into. And I think that's where the issue really arises, is that we're told, here's a climate change bill, let us know what you think, and let's see what happens from there. First of all, we don't understand the terms uh, as well as we need to, to be able to comment and participate in that consultation should there ever be one. Uh, I mean, a big thing was, having to speak to Comrade Brandon and a few others to ask him to break down the climate change bill for us because of how monstrous it is as a bill, as a document, first of all. And then we had to go and have consultations on a smaller scale with young people and, and individuals across South Africa because we realized very quickly that <laughs> if no one else is going to you know, consult us, we have to do it ourselves. And that's not any way that something should happen. It should be something that the government does. But here we are as civil society, as fellow young people, having to take the deconstructed knowledge that we've learned so we can deconstruct it for younger generations uh, and other young people across South Africa. And then comes the problem of language, accessibility, the access to resources to translate that information, So it can be effectively understood. uh, And that in itself is a problem. So I don't think that the bill holds the weight that it needs to. And I don't think it will hold the weight that it needs to, sadly. Because I don't think the processes to make it intersectional, to make it incorporative and engaging, has been taken. I mean... A big thing that we learned through the consultations and the spaces is that while the bill is good and it talks about and it mentions this and it talks about that, and there are issues with the bill that we can't begin to, we can't begin to fathom. You know, Brandon has broken them down quite beautifully and his colleagues have broken it down quite beautifully. But the issue is that even in that breakdown, it still uses jargon, it still has complex terms that Doesn't address, you know, or doesn't speak to rather the issues that young people can actively engage with. Um, Another big issue that it comes forward with when when it comes to young people and the climate change bill is, I don't actively think that those in power are thinking about this generation and the future generation to come um, when it comes to this bill and implementing this bill in the future. Uh, right now, the bull isn't as strong as it needs to be. And back and forth, back and forth, we keep hearing, is it better to have no bull at all or a weak climate change bill? Uh, that's something that young people can't, <laughs> can't begin to explain. But we would hope we would have a strong climate change bill, one that actively speaks to the needs of young people, the wants of young people. Because honestly, it's not just about what we need, it's about what we want for a better livelihood going forward. We want to be able to actively participate and engage with our future, not just watch decisions being made about us, uh, without us, so to speak. And so I really do think that this, this bill as it stands, uh, before it becomes an act needs to go through deep, deep, deep processes, uh, so that it actually begins to engage what we needed to. I mean, it acknowledges our Section 24 constitutional right, the human impact on climate change, South Africa's vulnerability, and the role in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I believe it talks to the impact on livelihoods and the environment, which is all beautiful in practice, or in theory, rather. But I'm not necessarily sure how they'll fulfill it in practice. Time and time again, our government has shown that they aren't really good at following with their words. And so I do worry when it comes to that part, um, especially when it comes to implementing things. In the consultation that Brandon helped host and facilitate, a big point of concern were four massive problem areas, the urgency, transparency and access, the weak targets set out and penalty, penalties and enforcement. Those areas are just a few of the areas that we as young people don't even understand where we should begin to engage with. Me saying that young people don't understand doesn't mean that we actively don't want to still engage and work with it. Uh, I just think it's me stating a fact and trying to be as honest as I can is that we can't begin to engage something as effectively as we'd like to if we don't understand it. If we don't begin to understand and don't have access to knowledge at our front door, I think that's the issue, is that a massive document is released, it says it's open for comment, good luck, figure it out. Forget about the fact that, you know, we had to use means of Zoom and other platforms to access these engagements, because at the time we were still heavily within the the lockdown period, or well, not the lockdown period, but there were regulations in place. So engagement was very limited, access to network is very limited, let alone the fact that we didn't have resources to do consultations on the ground. Yeah, and so I really do think that that this process has not been incorporative of young people. Uh It's not been incorporative of us in our various sectors of civil society because it's not just us sitting as, cool, we're young people, we're in a certain cage over here. It's young people who are women, young people who are workers, young people who are community, young people in the workforce. I think people think young people are this monolith. You speak to one, you've spoken to all. But I don't think we're being engaged the way that we should be.
1: Thank you, Comrade Gabriel, for another really thought-provoking contribution. And I think it ties into a lot of very prevalent themes. Um, I think particularly meaningful engagement and participation and linked to education because you cannot have, particularly on an issue, it's relatively novel and, and to, to our society, you cannot call it meaningful participation if there isn't really the public education to unpack the terms that are discussed on, 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 a mass level. And, and I think the process can be as important as the content. Um, as Gabriel said, I think it's a very important point because it becomes a piece of paper if the public who ultimately need to hold powerful people to to accountable to its standards don't really know what's in it. So I think that's an immense gap and I think that something of the significance of the climate change bill, given the fact that it's probably our society and the global society's biggest challenge of our generation, it should be seen kind of as almost a constitutional-making moment where there's extensive, deep, long public consultation there's extensive workshopping in different areas and reach and through different media. And, 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 unfortunately to date, I've seen no, no evidence of that. And, and given a very worrying, especially since COVID, Gabriel, he pointed out uh, a pattern of tick box uh, public so-called consultation. So I think given, given the background, given the bill and its weaknesses, and also given, the way in which decision makers and in all branches of government, but including in parliament in this case, usually conduct public participation. Can each panelist give as a, as a way of wrapping up a bit of two minutes, a brief of kind of way forward, what can be done in brief to try as workers, as communities, as, 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 as youth, as, civil society to ensure meaningful participation and also a bill that does justice to the intersectional and nature of climate crisis as a national and world emergency. So I'll hand over to first to Comrade Brandon.
2: I think from these really passionate and well-thought-through perspectives that were shared, We can see how many different pieces of everything we do is touched by this issue. And I think it's emerged that we have these two dynamics. On the one hand, we need a strong bill. It must compel sound and effective response. It must strengthen democracy. It must follow science. It must ensure this urgent need to have a just transition to a low carbon and climate resilient economy and society. And then on the other hand, it must be urgent. Right now there are developments being approved, such as the Messina Mercado Special Economic Zone, which will contribute up to 13% to our carbon budget. Uh, We're seeing a fossil fuel industry that is salivating about new prospects. The gas industry wants to, to roll out gas infrastructure all over the country. The coal industry, which we would have hoped is having its dying breaths, is striding forth and having a bonanza, um, also enabled by the Ukraine war. And we are seeing climate response being discussed in some business and government circles and probably other places too as something that's a choice, whereas those who really understand the nature of the, the crisis know that there's no choice to be had, and yet we can't leave anyone behind. So we need to push in public participation when we engage with decision makers, politicians, representatives, even in a, within our communities, tell the stories, understand the bill as best we can, um, and push for it to be stronger and push for it to come into being urgently because we are running out of time.
1: Thank you, Comrade Brandon. So I'll hand over to Comrade Francina for a wrap up on the way forward. From a community perspective,
3: for us as women, we were saying that um, climate change is already affecting uh, humankind and uh, natural uh, system. What is needed is that uh, the nat- national treasury need to jump in and also be committed on how they're going to play part in the climate change bill and our municipality to get the technical support for this um, climate change uh, to be minimized. And we also need to look at the carbon budget to have the time frame on the climate change bill and the IPCC reports they need to be taken seriously because they talk about what is happening now and that needs to be taken into consideration and their uh, research or their input that is very crucial to the climate change bill. And the important part is not to have a gap on the education and the implementation part because we need to have communities who are well knowledgeable about this bill. And it is the duty of the government to make sure that they do their job, they stop being in the offices, uh, they need to make sure that they do a proper awareness on this one because it's us communities or leaders who are doing much work of education, of awareness about uh, this climate change bill. It needs to be the duty of the government to make sure that communities understand what is climate change bill and also as uh, Comrade Gabriel talked about a language barrier. This language barrier is very, very, very important to look at it because those who are in the rural areas, I'm I'm talking about the elders, uh, they need to also understand What is the climate change bill and what's happening about it? Let's not have that gap. All ages, they need to be part of this uh, climate change bill to give inputs because we are all affected by climate change. And it takes courage for a person to do change and it takes courage for a person not to do change in the community. We all affect debate, let me change, and we all have to do something now. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Comrade Francine. Really impressing the urgency of the challenge and also the need for National Treasury to actually resource the kind of capacitation and education and resources needed um, to actually make adaptation and actual mitigation a reality. So I'll hand over to Comrade Matthew, for your closing thoughts and, and also way forward for the working class.
0: Thanks. I I did want to just uh, also mention there was something I wanted to add in a critique of the bill. Um, whilst it does acknowledge that it has to source the latest scientific knowledge, it doesn't state from where. Uh, IPCC is definitely one, but there's a very important source of information that the South African climate bill needs to tap into, and that's local traditional knowledge as well. There are communities that have existed in this part of Africa for m- centuries who who know the geography, the landscape better than, than anyone, better than any uh, science currently can uh, determine or in the time left to determine it. Um, so local traditional knowledge is a vital source of real information. And not only will it also speak to what occurs in these geographical areas in this country, which is very vast and very varied, but also immediately be able to bring those communities into a process that the government can move forward with. I think one of the main points in closing for definitely for the working class would be a bill that is speaking to a just transition a plan that specifically deals with jobs and specifically deals with climate-based jobs, with jobs that are going to be moving towards not only sustained employment, but fighting back against an emergency that we are facing in terms of climate. One that is a just emergency, not just an emergency that we uh, fold our arms and look to government and look to private sector employers to to give us jobs. These These must be jobs that speak to what all of us in the country can do, that helps to maintain not only income and standards of living for working class people and their families and communities, but also can spur ahead against the effects of climate change. And, and South Africa needs more and more employment. So let us make millions of climate based jobs. Let us look to renewable sources of energy. Let us have a plan that speaks to it. And let us bolster the economy. And also it will benefit the global capitalist system if you are directly dealing with its own impacts. So it's about changing our energy sources and, and mitigating the effects of climate change in a way that is just for those who are going to be feeling the brunt of it, which are the poor and the working class. They just are. They're the ones who are going to be directly affected by it. And as all of our panelists have said, it's just not enough consultation, understanding, education, it's just not speaking to what the constitution sets out to do at the very least. So I think that that's the main, main push that we have to immediately embark on as, as a collective, as all working class organizations and anybody who's in this fight, we have to actually really be pushing it hard.
1: Thank you, Comrade Matthew, for really important points regarding recognition of traditional knowledge, but also regarding the failure of the bill, as it currently stands, to 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 really provide a robust plan for an economic just transition, and and so I will hand over to to Comrade Gabriel for some of your closing thoughts on 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 ways forward, given given the bill its flaws and and the present situation.
4: I think a big thing that I'd like to see moving forward with the bill is obviously active public participation. I think we have this notion or this understanding of public participation in South Africa, but oftentimes that means come to the room, come to the space, we'll mark that you were present, uh, have your muffin and your coffee on your way out, and now we've bought you and we've bought your vote. But in actual fact, I don't think community members understand that being present in a room isn't your consent being given away. And I don't think that those who hold those types of uh, consultations understand that those aren't actually just consultations. That's just a space for them to vocalize their feelings and their thoughts about their quote-unquote lovely goal or whatever it would be in that moment. I think we need to start really looking at and unpacking what true active public participation is how consultation looks in this country, what it means to have at least an understanding in the room, if not a consensus. I think that a big first step is that we need to ensure, and and I think a lot of civil society has already begun to do it, but I think government needs to begin to do it as well, is something called the mother tongue approach, is that when you go to a community... And it's a community that does not speak the, the the language as a first language that you are coming with it with a presentation in. You need to make sure that there's documentation or information, or at least a translator in the room to help that message get across. You need to speak to the person that you're you're trying to engage in a way that they will understand. I find that that's quite a slap in the face, expecting people to completely understand a technical document. In a language that isn't their first, or maybe even second or third language, in a country as diverse as South Africa. Secondly, I think we need to really start addressing the jargon that comes in this space. I believe that, you know, civil society, even you know, different areas are oftentimes, you know, academics or scientists are accused of this, but even they've become so incorporative and inclusive over the last decade. You know, I think. There's no more excuses of, oh, well, uh, the reason that we as government don't have uh, inclusive language is because science doesn't know. Science is trying to make it as simple as possible nowadays. And I think there's no more hiding behind that scapegoat. And then lastly, I think really and truly is we need, and I think Matthew mentioned it quite brilliantly, we need that duality of lived experience and reality and knowledge as well as scientific you can say cool in three years science shows that a b and c is going to happen but you can also just go and look in a community and watch the destruction already occurring in that community you can watch that way that people are suffering and you don't need a graph to tell you okay cool by 2025 or 2026, that's when we need to start taking action because that's when science says that's not what we need. We need a balance between the two. We need people to start having their voices elevated and heard. We need to be in the rooms while those documents are being drafted because otherwise it's going to be a continuous cycle of We've decided what we want to do already, but because law says that we have to engage you, we're going to pretend to engage you and we're going to wish you luck. Otherwise, we are on a lost cause going forward.
1: Thank you, Comrade Gabriel. And and to sum up, some of the most urgent and pressing themes are a meaningful economic and social just transition plan. Me- meaningful participation and consent, where there's real mutual understanding, and and as well as public education, transparency, and the need also for any legislation to actually have teeth to be enforceable against, against the corporates and government actors, who jeopardize our futures with their emission causing activities. So I'd like to thank all the listeners, and also to all the excellent panelists who who very generously gave your time and lend your expertise to this discussion. And we, w- we hope that we can ensure through our collective efforts that the public participation process on this bill is actually a meaningful one and that actually civil society, communities, workers and the broader working class are actually able to, where change is needed, to actually make s- some changes to the bill and to ensure real robust climate justice plan.
0: Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production by the Climate Justice Coalition. To find out more about the coalition and their work to promote climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the friedrich Ebert stiftung